and the Oscar goes to George Clooney in Syriana. Welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this week, we welcome back Fritz, who, uh, let's be honest, is kind of like an honorary co-host of the podcast at this point. <laughs> um, but you can find him at uh, Fritz and Oscars on uh, Twitter slash X uh, and YouTube. Um, and welcome back, Fritz. Thanks so much, guys, for having me again. I don't know how to quit you, and I don't want to. <laughs> uh, we're doing... We're, this is the quartet um, that is, is being completed now. We've done three acting lineups. Um, we've done Best Actress 1978. We've done Best Supporting Actress 1952. We've done Best Actor 1963. And now we're doing Best Supporting Actor, which is maybe not everybody's favourite acting category. Um but we're doing the year 2005, which I kind of float the idea for this category because the men are pretty attractive, um, at least, you know, compared with the other options we had. Um, but Fritz, what was your initial thoughts when we decided on this lineup? Had you seen them all? Did you have any trepidation? What were you looking forward to? <laughs> Um, I had seen them all, some of them um, not since they came out. Um, I was looking forward to, again, watching Brokeback Mountain, which I hadn't seen in a while. I was not so keen to rewatch Crash, but I guessed, well, I mean, I hadn't seen it in a long time, so who knows what I thought now, and we can talk later about what I think now. And yeah, in general, I just agreed with you. Let's just take another another hot lineup. Okay, so let's dive straight into it, because I think there's going to be issues to discuss here in this year. This is the first time we're talking about 2005, the film year that was. Um, and the nominees were Matt Dillon in Crash, Jake Gyllenhaal in Brokeback Mountain, Paul Giamatti in Cinderella Man, William Hurt in A History of Violence, and the winner, George Clooney in Syriana. So let's begin um, with Matt Dillon in Crash. First and only nomination for Matt Dillon. Uh, Crash was an early release, received six Academy Award nominations, won three for editing, screenplay, and of course, Best Picture. Um, and its three awards were the lowest for a Best Picture winner since Rocky, uh, nearly 30 years before this. And also, interesting Oscar stat, Paul Haggis is the only person to have written two Best Picture winners in a row because he also wrote Million Dollar Baby um, the previous year to this. So talking about Crash as a film first, do you guys think the bad reputation kind of stems more from its Best Picture victory or just because it it's not a good movie? I think it stems from the fact that it's a terrible film. Um it yeah i i mean we can get into the whys and wherefores of why it's a terrible film but to me it's 
one of the reasons that I don't like it is that it's very, very, um, it's, it's kind of like everything that the right thinks about liberal Hollywood's approach to race wrapped up in one movie. Like, this film, and I say this as a liberal, this is a film of liberals patting themselves on the back and saying, yay, we've done racism. Uh, we've we've addressed it, and we've made a a message film about it. Yay us! And it has a very self important quality throughout it, and it feels like it's really taking itself very seriously and thinking that it's being very um, perceptive about race when in reality it's quite racist uh, in a lot of ways. And it's also very didactic. Like, nobody talks like a human. They're all just spouting catchphrases and spouting exposition. Um, and that just kind of makes it, uh, yeah, kind, kind of a slog, kind of a chore to get through. I've written down this is a Daniel Simon version of a movie about racism. <laughs> <laughs> As because I totally agree with you. Nobody talks like this. And... I mean, even if you say it's, it's a message movie, I have zero idea what the message is supposed to be. I mean, the movie surely wants us to tell racism is bad, but I have no idea what all these different storylines. I don't know. I, I I wrote down, most of the time I just wrote down when writing about Medellin is this movie is so awful. And... I don't know, all these conversations that they're having. Paul Haggis has zero flair for making this kind of natural. But when you have people constantly talking about one way of racism, one after another, and I don't disagree that there are probably people who talk like this, but it's the way they put it together in this one movie is awful. Yeah, I'm just imagining um, Marsha Mason in Sandra Bullock's role now. Yeah. <laughs> This is like an extremely downbeat view of multiculturalism, isn't it? You know, um, it's extremely cynical. I I hope the message from Paul Haggis is not that we can all be like these people. <laughs> because if so, like he's misjudged it massively. Because um, it, it is difficult to imagine people being so vocal in their racial stereotyping or in the case of Ludacris, you know, pontificating about the racial hang-ups and then turning a gun on somebody, which just seemed to sort of take away what the film was saying, you know, in the next moment. Because um, it's not as if people don't make these generalisations in, in life, racial generalisations, and some of them are, are accurate. Uh, some of them are harmless, but, you know, a lot of them can be negative. And... But it feels like racism is a bit more ingrained and murkier than what we're seeing in this film. Like, I think Paul Haggis just wants to have all of the discourse vocalised and in your face. But that means that the way that the messaging comes across is just kind of laughable. Um, so I agree with you guys. Um, I feel like the film doesn't isn't aware of how laughable it's coming across a lot of the time. I mean, it's even even if you take the, the bad writing out of it, I think the movie is also just badly made. I mean, the scene when Sandra Bullock falls down the stairs and then you have this dramatic, and you see her lying and you have this dramatic score of this woman singing and like it's the most dramatic moment you've ever seen in a movie. And this is so 
stupid and I don't know. And then you have her hugging her maid and I don't know. What does she say? You're my only friend. You're my best friend. And I don't know. I'm like, yeah, that's the woman you're paying to make your house and you're constantly rude to her. And now she helped you up the stairs because that's what you do. And I don't know. And then they don't even show the face of her. They only show Sandra Bullock's face. I did wonder whether the film would have benefited from less characters, to be honest. Um, it does feel like there are a lot of a lot of stories um, and it could have done with more development in the actual storylines. Like Sandra Bullock, she falls down the stairs and it's sort of like, oh, she's realised <laughs> she's been a horrible tyrant all along. You know, it's, um, you know, it's very convenient to just do that in the space of 30 seconds. And the same with the car crash. When the car crash happens, it feels like Matt Dillon doesn't have any other reason to be in the film now. So it's like the film has all these characters and then it just does away with their stories very quickly, almost dismissively as saying, oh, we're done with that now. Let's tick off the next box. Yeah, yeah. it's it's like you said, it's, it feels like Paul Haggis wanted to... Everything he, he feels, he thinks about racism and every angle he can, 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 can come up with, he wanted everything to be in this movie and then he just had too much. And then it feels so repetitive after a while and you have all because he may, he thinks he's, he's telling different stories but he somehow tells the same story over and over again just with different characters and it's also always very it's very hard to be in, invested in any of those characters you probably don't need to be invested in them because a lot of them are awful persons but you also don't want to follow them in any way what about tandy newton and terence howard did that work <laughs> i felt it was maybe the best i, I just I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it's the 2005 point of view. I felt when they were stopped by the police at the beginning, I personally feel that they would probably be much more nervous. But maybe that's just from today's point of view. I don't know if in 2005 it was, they had a different point of view. But from I hear about the US, I'm always very, hmm, I don't know. I, I think it's never a good sign if you're stopped by the police, but it might be just a stereotype now on my point. Um no, I think I think that's accurate. Um, I mean, they had been the characters were a bit tipsy at the time, but I think even allowing for that, they should have been scared much earlier in that interaction. Um, like when a when the cop, t you know, when Matt Dillon tells him to get out of the car, that should have been the oh shit moment, not when he starts fingering her. I mean, obviously that's horrible, but they should have realized something was bad going down way earlier than that um so yeah you're you're absolutely right uh even in 2005 uh that would have been a situation where they should have been much more kind of on edge to be realistic i think the storyline i like i liked the least was um i don't know the name the name of the actor right now but it basically the, the guy who owns the shop and is robbed and then goes to to this guy's place to i don't know to shoot him and this whole thing i don't know after what he just goes home and what i had the most is how manipulative the scene is when they everybody thinks he shot the child and instead of checking on her every, everyone just breaks down in slow motion yeah it feels so manipulative because obviously she's bought the bullets and she doesn't know she's bought blanks. But <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like little things that the film does earlier on to foreshadow just feels manipulative. The fact that there's a dead kid at the beginning, you think, oh, it's going to be the it's going to be the locksmith's son, uh, so, locksmith's daughter that's going to have died. And it turns out to be 
know, Don Cheadle's brother instead, which is just, again, you know, really contrived. I just quickly want to say I hated the comedy at the end with the crash. I mean, how obvious can you be? And when you have, oh, look, it's the woman from the, 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 I don't know, the welfare office or whatever. And look, she's a racist too. We're all racists. And it's like, oh, all these trafficked people are going to go out into the world and everybody's going to be racist to them too, you know, and the cycle goes on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and again, at the, at the ending, I have no idea. It's like, I don't know. I always think of the, the FNQ song where they're like, everybody's a little bit racist and essentially that's okay. <laughs> and I feel the movie wants to tell me this. But you can, you know, if you're white, your racism can be cured by being cared for by your Latina maid. Yeah. <laughs> or by or by rescuing a black woman from a car crash, which I thought was an interesting way to kind of quote unquote redeem Matt Dillon, oh, he didn't let he didn't let a woman burn to death in a car. What a amazing <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you know. <laughs> he's not racist anymore. I actually wrote this down when I for my for today. It was am I am I supposed to cheer on him now for not letting her die? But I feel it but I feel in the world yeah, I feel in the world of Paul Haggis, yeah, I'm, I am supposed to cheer on him. Yeah, well, she does, right? She, the, you know, she looks back, kind of lingering, looking at him, like maybe he wasn't the monster I thought. As like, no, he is. He, you know, <laughs> just isn't a actual murderer, you know. So, <laughs> but this that character was a problem. Like I said, of it, I, I liked Matt Dillon, but it's also the fact, you know, he's helping his dad, who's you know, medically got issues. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, so the dad's, maybe the dad's racist and he's sort of drummed that into the sun. But actually, no, it's the other way around, we're led to believe. If that's that scene with Loretta Devine where I wasn't sure if Matt Dillon was supposed to be lying at that point, the character, or whether his father was supposedly this great, you know, open-minded um, guy hiring immigrants. I didn't understand if that was supposed to be serious, but if it was, it's really silly and it doesn't explain properly why he's such a racist guy. I have to, I have to say, as yeah, the, the character has problems, the movie has problems, but if I'm fair, I think Matt Dillon is pretty good at playing this asshole. Um, so I have a feeling that I know a lot of people like him, especially nowadays after refugee crises after corona crises i know so many people who have drifted to the right simply with oh we are i have it so hard now i'm a racist asshole and i have a feeling he's essentially like this so he's like oh i have it so hard with my father and my job and so i'm just this racist asshole and i'm not excusing his character but i think he's playing it well yeah i think it's a big career best it's the, certainly the best i've seen him um and I think the best performance in the film. I wish he was in more of it, but his character works strong. I feel like I know who the person is without us needing that scene he's got with um, Loretta Devine. Um, and yeah, it, it, he's definitely got the the toxic masculinity, the hyper-aggression of the police. He's got that sort of embodied really well. Um, so yeah, I thought it was really successful performance. 
And I have to say, Matt Dillon, um, I think he plays also the, 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 the crash scene. I have to say, as manipulative, again, as the crash scene is, I think it's pretty well done. So it, even if you know what happens, it, it is kind of nail-biting. And he and Thandie Newton are really good in the scene. We didn't mention that really racist against the Chinese, I thought, in this. Like, that scene that's played for laps where the guy gets run over and then we're supposed to sort of vaguely comedic, half comedic, half endearing scene at the end where the wife comes in and is like, oh, I've been a bit nasty to somebody today. I yelled at a woman and it's like, oh, I, I don't know. I, d- I thought it didn't really treat them seriously. And then it turns and then it turns out that they're human traffickers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, they they do not get a good shake. Well, what about I mean you mentioned you mentioned the um the shop owner earlier who's just a psychotic until he shoots or thinks he shoots the little girl. He just is angry and yelling at everyone and threatening everyone all the time. He's just always at 10 screaming at people. Um not a very positive portrayal. Uh, of him either no and i mean again he he thinks that he shot the girl i mean they find out he didn't shoot the girl but then apparently he just goes home and it's all over Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i didn't understand why his daughter wanted a gun so badly in the first place did they like address that because i was i always thought that she bought him the blanks deliberately like knowing that he would probably use it in an unsafe way I I thought that because there is that bit of dialogue where she says, give me those. And the gun shop owner says, you know what these are? And she kind of impatiently says, just give them to me. And I think it's because she does see that they're blanks um, and she kind of buys it to protect him from himself. That was always uh, that was my interpretation of it anyway. That's probably yeah, that's probably no, that's probably right. That still, still doesn't make his portrayal any better. Uh, no, not at all. No, it's, <laughs> it's a very narrow portrayal. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense. There's one character in the movie who I think at some point says, why are you yelling at me or something like this? And I'm, I was thinking this, the same thing about the movie. Why is everybody yelling at me while I'm watching this? Yeah. And then what about, sorry, this, this isn't related, but it did, I did make me laugh the scene where um, Christine goes to visit Cameron on the set and basically tells him um, like the worst pep talk you could possibly give him in that situation like i'm just i felt sorry for you being so emasculated in front of the cop (laughs) and it's like girl you are not helping what are you talking about (laughs) how did she think that was gonna go well (laughs) i know and in a public place if i couldn't have waited till he got home you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know oh dear I th- yeah, I think what best symbolizes the, the problems of the movie is that one scene with Don Cheadle where he's on the phone and he's like, I can't talk right now. I'm having sex with a white woman. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, we get it. Mm-hmm. That's all anyone can say, basically. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but the Academy voters um, gravitated towards Crash, um, as, as we know. Um, okay, so because we're going kind of out of sync, not alphabetical, because um, we're going to Jake Gyllenhaal next. 
because we need to talk about the the fact that these were the two juggernauts. Well, no, Crash and Brokeback were the, the sort of um, two films at the centre of this controversy because um, Brokeback was perceived as the juggernaut. But Jake Gyllenhaal, it's his only nomination thus far. Brokeback Mountain was the critical darling of the year, nominated for eight Oscars, won three, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay and Best Original Score. Do, kind of what are your memories of of this whole um this whole situation and and broke back's sort of um journey to become the the, the Oscar frontrunner I'm far too young to remember this <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay probably not um well i mean i was really following that oscar season and it was I have to say it was kind of important for me that Burbank Mountain was such a big deal. And when it lost, this really, haha, crashed me. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it, it, this, this was, I mean, I didn't, st- obviously I didn't stop caring about the Academy Awards, but I, I was really in the weeks after this, I was really f- considering that it's, in the end, it's just an Oscar, but I was really depressed after this because it was really like such a big F you from Oscar voters to one of their biggest fan groups. And this really, it kind of felt, it really felt personal. Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember thinking early on in the year when awards pundits were talking about what could be nominated, because this is kind of the second year I was properly following it, the Oscars, that I I was thinking, you know, Brokeback Mountain wasn't going to be a serious player. You know, to me, the casting seemed quite young and twinky. Um, You know, the topic didn't seem what you Oscar usually responds to and there were already people demeaning it very early on this like the gay cowboy movie um and it could I think it still could have been a bad film if the if it had been in the wrong hands honestly but in the hands of Ang Lee and in the hands of these actors who do very well um I think it just works so well but yeah, speaking from experience watching the Oscars when I was like 18 and um, having seen this, you know, having seen the movie and loved it, um, it was very demoralising and unexpected, although SAG had um, Crash had won the SAG award, but that was a kind of a more of an ensemble piece, so you would have expected that. Um, but yeah, it, 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 uh, it did hit hard. That it lost. I mean, also because Brokeback Mountain won so much. I mean, I know that Crash won the Zack award, award, but I mean, Brokeback Mountain won pretty much everything else. And and I also remember that there were reports coming out. I think back then I was on Gold Derby still a lot. And there were reports coming out that people, I think people like Ernest Borgnine were like, oh, that's the the gay cowboy movie that's disrespectful to John Wayne and stuff like this. And then Crash won the Zack Award and that there were people who didn't like Brokeback Mountain and that now Crash somehow was the, for a lot of people, the alternative. And I read all this, but I just didn't think it was really happen. Just didn't feel, just didn't feel, seem possible. I was, I was, I resigned that any of the actors would win. um, But I just, didn't think that it would really lose Best Picture. And it really felt more like 
not not that it wasn't it didn't feel like we vote for crash because we love it so much it felt really more like we vote for crash because we don't want brokeback mountain to win yeah definitely that's so gay and i think you you know you have to view it in consideration of the time and how much of a trailblazer it it was because it was mainstream and unapologetically a gay romance you know it's not like philadelphia where philadelphia is not really about gay romance it's about somebody with a terminal illness and the gay side is the backdrop really um but you know i mean i think there'd been better lgbt films before brokeback mountain like you know happy together comes to mind but that's on a, a far lower level than taking two rising stars and putting them in a you know a mid-budget film releasing it in so many cinemas and have having it make 180 million dollars. Yeah, it's, it's easy to forget that it's, I mean, it's only 18 years ago, but still how controversial this was and how much fun was made of this and how this was still like, ooh, like, ooh, it's all gay. I mean, I'm not saying that all, things have gotten so much better this since then, but they were definitely worse. I think Ang Lee, it's wonderful that Ang Lee won Best Director. He seems to really understand the material. He makes really lovely use of the setting I think considering it's not an area of the country particularly renowned for you know being beautiful or you know popularized much um, images of Wyoming um, you know but I think he really makes it very evocative and classy and convincing as a romance um, and it's really smart to begin with this 45 minute sequence of Jack and Ennis completely alone, you know, up this mountain, isolated. Um, and their experience, like, grounds us in their relationship so we can invest in it later on. Because um, they keep referring to their time on the mountain and it's sort of the time they never got after that. You know, it's like this was them living their lives together without having to worry about anybody else. And that's because it's the film starts with that it, as a foundation, it, it makes the ending of it and, you know, the second half of it all the more devastating, really. Um, but yeah, I thought Ang Lee's work, you know, tremendously deserved. It is a very beautiful movie and, and very affecting and heartbreaking. And if, if, this was, if this was a straight love story, it would probably write, also back then, write up the Academy's alley and just everything what they're looking for. Um, like the year before with Million Dollar Baby. Also, you just want to cry. Brokeback Mountain can also make you cry, but I think too many people were like, ugh. And I mean, I'm always... What I will say about the Oscar race is what I can understand. If if you're an Oscar voter and you don't pay too much attention and you watch Brokeback Mountain for the first time, it is the kind of movie I think can be underwhelming when you watch it the first time because it's so quiet and introvert and... The characters are not necessarily likable and Crash is so obvious and has this, it's kind of serious, but also leaves you in a good mood because you think you've now done something very important by watching this movie and it has a big ensemble. So I can understand if you watch it just, both of them just one time, why you might the first time maybe be drawn to Crash. So I, I, I always give them that, but yeah, it doesn't make it better. 
did they watch the film? I think that's the question. Because it's hard to imagine people watching the film and thinking, oh, that's really, you know, distasteful. or Because it's incredibly classy. So I think it's more the fact that there's a lot of people that didn't watch it. Probably also, yeah. But even if it's... I personally think even if it is a very tasteful movie and even is it, if, it, if it is a very beautiful movie and I still think that in 2005 there were a lot of people who still were like, oh, that's a love story about two men. Who wants to see the, who wants to see that? Well, yeah, I mean, they had, I mean, Ledger and Gyllenhaal were always Angley's first choice um, for the roles, but they did consider others. But uh, Lee said that they were all most of the other people they considered were too, like they they were really reticent because of the subject matter. And I think who's it? Um, th- there was an actor I think who was quote unquote creeped out when he read the script. I think it was. Um, Mark Wahlberg or somebody like that. So yeah, definitely, definitely the That's um, not a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, definitely the um, the uh, kind of opposition to the subject matter. I think you're right. Uh, the idea of a, a film about a gay romance definitely put voters off uh, at the time, and yeah, probably just didn't watch it and just said, oh yeah, Crash, like you say, an L.A. movie. It's a message movie. Yeah, that sounds good. They're like, oh, you know, I know that street. I'll give it best picture. You know? I mean, you can't forget that like only 10 years before uh, Crash, they gave best picture to Braveheart, which has a scene where they where the king throws his gay son out of the window for laughs. I think because if you look at it now, it brought back does seem a little tame physically. Um, but you've obviously got to judge it at the time that you, when you think of films like God's Own Country, for instance, um, which which have happened in the past, you know, 10 years, five to 10 years, which sort of does that rawned primal, you know, um, ranch hands in the wilderness thing better in a way, in terms of sort of making the physicality feel important. It's sort of, you can tell that Brokeback is restraining itself because A, it needs to be greenlit by the studio and B, it's going it's going for palatability, quote-unquote, as a gay romance to be taken seriously. And yet, you know, a lot of people don't take it seriously, which is demoralising. Um, but I think, you know, it's supposed to be set in the 70s as well, which you've got to remember, so it's it's in the Midwest where it's not always easy to gauge sexuality or attraction, who's gay and who's not, who's open to it and who's not, you know, which Jack kind of finds out. I think that's what we're supposed to take from that. Um, But yeah, if it was a heterosexual romance made with the same sentiment, with the same director, with the same level of prestige as a novel, as a short story, there's no doubt it definitely would have won Best Picture. With the same pre-Oscar attention, definitely. I wanted to ask, um, how did you guys feel about the the women in the film, the actresses in the film? Because there are, unexpectedly, like there are a few women in it, which is, is good to see. Um, and they sort of each have different roles and different personalities, which I thought was, was nice. I personally think the cast is pretty great all around. I always forget that David Harbour is the the cowboy who 
um, Jake Gyllenhaal wants to settle down with later. Yeah. Um, but personally, I think the cast is pretty great. Um, at the time, I was really hoping for Michelle Williams to, to win an Oscar. Um, now I'm personally more a Rachel Wise person, but she's still fantastic. I also think that Anne Hathaway is pretty great. I know she mostly get, people mostly talk about her wick, but I think her performance is, <laughs> is pretty great. And also the, the smaller roles, um, the, the um, um, Kate Mara, is it, as, um, as his daughter? And, and yeah. Linda Cardellini, I thought, really good in a small role. Yeah, I really know no complaints about all of them. And I think Heath is just brilliant. I think Heath gives the best performance in the film. Um, just very restrained, very contained performance, but completely convincing you kind of want him to give a bit more sometimes but that's clearly the character not the actor um and that kind of dynamic felt convincing throughout the yeah, film yeah I, I think his ledger is all-time great to be honest i mean philip Seymour hoffman was great as well but um i'm totally in the least he's ledger corner here what do we think about the category uh confusion here is Jake Gyllenhaal the lead, the co-lead of Brokeback Mountain? Yeah. Yes. If this was a, uh, again, if this was a straight um, love story, there's no way that the actress who plays um, Jacqueline Twist would be put in supporting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the same year you have Walk the Line, where Reese Witherspoon could be put in supporting, but she goes leading because she because she's the main female character. Yeah, it is. It. I mean, I remember before the um, campaigning was announced that, I mean, there was like quite a few sort of murmurings that whoever was the top was going to be lead. <laughs> <laughs> like that was that was pretty much like it's nailed on. Whoever's the top is going to be the lead, um, <laughs> which is like you know, but but that's that's what came to fruition, and um, as far as we know. But yeah, um, I think Hall. as I said, I was worried before um, the film that he was going to be too young. Um, but I think, you know, that really suits the film that he's that he's this young sort of upstart at the beginning and he's like, plays Jack as this joker and he's impetuous and he speaks his mind and he's hot-headed and and it's a contrast between the two characters that really works. Um, and you could still believe they could be kind of drawn together as a couple. So I liked Hall a lot. I also liked him a lot. Um, I think he, especially in the beginning that he makes it obvious that he is interested in Ennis, but he doesn't make it too obvious to somehow push him away. So there's the right balance to in a way he behaves so a little bit funny but also serious to get him to come out of his shell without overdoing it and and I think they work very well together yeah he continued to surprise me as well throughout the performance I even buy him in those sort of later days um, even though I prefer him at the beginning it, it feels like the kind of breakthrough that when I watched The Aviator and saw DiCaprio and the aviator and thought oh okay so this is finally the moment where 
you've branched out from the baby face and you've kind of matured it into like somebody I can find convincing and somebody with presence and even though you know this is not like a domineering performance it's I don't know I just felt like it's one way he's finally like a real breakthrough in his career for Jillian Hall um so yeah it was impressive I mean I liked it it was a, a big breakthrough for so many or basically for the entire cast um I don't think I had I mean, I think Michelle Williams up to that point was essentially the actress from, from um, what's it called? Um, Dawson's Creek? Is it, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think Anne Hathaway was taken seriously. So f really, I mean, she I th think she, she still needed a couple of years until Rachel getting married to be really taken seriously. But, and then of course for his Ledger, I mean, always very sad to think how much great performances he could have given how much more great performances he could have given I think it's really a pretty much perfect movie and it was robbed sorry to say it was robbed Jerry Ebert didn't think so no which is interesting but I think you know having seen them both again in the space of a couple of days now it's like so much more obvious whereas at the time it didn't feel so much like a travesty in the sense of the actual quality of the film the films but now it, it really does yeah they really i think brockwick mountain really aged well and crate and crash really did not yeah but there are i mean there are a lot of examples of that on there of films that didn't win oscars aging better than the the best picture winners themselves so yeah totally but i think i feel in a lot of cases the movie that aged better at the time did not really have a chance and became a classic over time but in, in, i think this is just such an infamous race because brokeback mountain had is act if you look at it really quite neutrally brokeback mountain had everything going for it and it you can really only pin it down to the story and to the to the gay love story mm -hmm. it's i mean la la land did too though right but then <laughs> La La Land only lost the SAG, I think, and won everything else. But yeah, it's it's on that level of like whoa. Yeah. But Moonlight, Moon, Moon, Moonlight at least Moonlight at least won the Golden Globe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, La La Land won Best Picture for a couple of minutes, so it still <laughs> it had its mo had its moment in the yeah. sun. <laughs> that that would have been worse if Brokeback had won, and then. <laughs> <laughs> And then somebody would have come and said, no, it's Crash. <laughs> oh, God. Jack Nicholson again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Actually, the way that Jack Nicholson delivered that announcement was so <laughs> on brand for him, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. With his shades. Did he have his shades on? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even he was like, not joking. I'm not joking. Yeah. We're over it. We're over it. It was it was a long time ago. So next we're going to talk about Paul Giamatti in Cinderella Man. This was Paul Giamatti's first and only nomination. Although I suspect in a couple of months he'll have another one. But um, yeah. And he was expected to be nominated the year before this for Sideways, but was snubbed. Um, three nominations for Cinderella Man. Best Editing and Best Makeup. How did you feel about this one? Very 
by the book, as far as a biopic goes. Um, very Ron Howard in its approach to a biopic, um, in the sense that it's very inspirational, uh, according to the music, and it kind of glosses over quite a bit and kind of smooths out everybody's personalities until they're um, you know, just right for the kind of inspirational story that he wants to tell. Um, so it's it's pretty cut and dry, I would say. I, I don't think it um, has much going for it uh, in terms of its uh, as a movie. If that if, if that makes sense, like its screenplay is very rote. It's very beholden to the three act structure and kind of all the plot points that it has to hit. Um, it's very manipulative emotionally, and um, yeah, like I says, like I said, um, kind of glosses over some more, shall we say, uh, details about it that would have gotten in the way of the of the narrative that it wants to tell. So I'm not, I wasn't super happy with it uh, watching it again, but the performances were good, so we can at least talk about those. Uh, no, I just wanted to agree that by the book um, probably hits the nail on the head. So it's exactly what you expect from this kind of movie. It feels a little bit like, oh, we had Million Dollar Baby that was about boxing and it was about sad and you had a very good person fighting boxing against a very bad person. Let's try that again and have it a bit more heartwarming. And yeah, was not really much to it. And as, as somebody who's a very big Renee Zellweger fan and somebody who actually likes both of her Oscar wins, which is very rare... I have to say, I kind of hated her in this. What, she wasn't the champion of your heart? <laughs> no, not really. It was like they, 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 they took all the, all the worst parts of the suffering wife and put from every kind of movie and put them all together in one person and created this. And gave her the same Chicago haircut as well. Mm. Uh. <laughs> I think, you know, I think even if you'd walked blindly into this screening, as soon as the first bar of the score kind of rings out at the beginning, you you just think Oscar bait. This is Oscar bait from start to finish. Um, but even, as, even aside from the fact that it's Ron Howard coming off the back of A Beautiful Mind um, with a biopic starring Russell Crowe again, um, who's one of the most popular actors in the world at this point until the phone thing happens, but that's another thing. Um, American Sporting Hero. Uh, it's just, if anyone says, I want to see Oscar bit, I'd sit them in front of Cinderella Man and say, here you are, this is it. It's completely vanilla. It's not a good film. It's boring. It's dull. It's like... At least the first hour, I would say, like where it's like, wah, 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 we can't feed the kids. Um, and I understand that the film wants to be this rags to riches style biopic, but I don't know why we need nearly an hour of the Great Depression and the milk not coming and the electric being turned off and the kid getting sick. I feel like they could have gotten through all of that in, in half the time, whereas it it drags the film out to nearly two and a half hours total. 
And then we only get 15 minutes of fight montages where he's suddenly the number one contender. So I think like the priorities of the film dramatically were a little bit um, incorrect. Yeah, but you know, he doesn't fight for his ego. If he doesn't fight, his children will starve. So it's heartwarming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say, though, that I thought that the, the fight <laughs> scenes were generally well done. Um, and you yeah. and he yeah. had the he won the fights for more reason than the Rocky reason, which is just he can't be knocked out, apparently, um, which I think got, you know, is pretty silly as a explanation for winning at boxing because it just reduces it to um who can stand being punched in the face longest i guess it's rocky whereas i don't know a lot about boxing but i think it's more than just punching each other in the face and this film the fight sequences at least showed the technical side of it um and made his coach slash manager interesting by the way they were the same person um but yeah Joe Gould, he didn't just tell him, okay, yeah, go back out there and hit him more and don't get hit by him. He actually gave him strategy, which, again, was better, I think, uh, representation of what boxing is actually like than just like, uh, yeah, go out and punch him, see if that works. And then when he comes back, like, oh, you you got hit a lot there. Try to avoid getting hit next time, you know, like in a lot of boxing movies. Yeah, the, I mean, the final title fight's really exciting, I thought. A really well shot, and the sound design too is is good because yeah, he really like feels it impacting, and the punches, and that worked well as a culmination. It's just if we cared, I felt like the film didn't make us care enough about these people in the first place for that to matter too much. But as a spectacle, the fight was good, and lasted a while and that's it probably lasted longer than the the montage of fights we got before it to be honest um i did wonder whether the real max Bayer was as much of an asshole as the film presents him to be like it it's very much like rocky going up against who was that yeah um is it rukahawa who's that like big tall Russian guy <laughs> it's, talking about like, Dolph Lundgren oh Dolph Lundgren sorry not a million yeah. miles away right <laughs> but yeah I would have watched I, I think Rutger Hauer could have believably portrayed a, a villain in Rocky no no I, I know what you're saying though no um, and Max Baer absolutely from what I can tell at least was completely they did him so dirty in this film um, he they basically just make him into this lug-headed monster um for like using the fact that he killed a person in the ring as like a joke and to further his career when in reality um he actually never recovered from it according to his son like he started smoking heavily had nightmares for years he really felt awful and he supported the guy's family after that because he felt so guilty about what he'd done um yeah he wasn't this meathead like he is in the movie, and he's just complete, completely a monster in the film, and I really don't understand why. Again, like I was saying before, it just kind of smooths everybody down to fit their role in the narrative, and that's the prime example. They couldn't possibly make Max Bear 
a decent person. He has to be this, you know, villain, even though the film doesn't really need a villain. It already has a villain that, you know, Braddock has been, his career's been set back and he's in the depression. He has to raise his family. He doesn't need to be fighting a complete monster for us to want him to win, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the character, I mean, in the movie, he's not even like, I'm gonna... I'm going to win over you. But he's like, he's constantly telling him, I will kill you. I have killed and I will kill again. I will kill everybody in the ring. And then I'll fuck your wife. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Again, it's also like, like Million Dollar Baby the year before with the, 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 when the, the, the one female boxer who's not like, she's not like only evil, but she hits Maggie when she's not looking. And after the gong has um, ringed and, so she's doing, she's totally unfair and, yeah. You always need this, I don't know why you always need this very evil person to fight again, to fight against. Yeah, it, it just, it has a lot of scenes where you just think, oh, this is done to, to tug at the heartstrings, like when he's got to beg for money from the, the people at Madison Square Garden, which... To be honest, Russell Crowe is good, really good in this film. He's a great actor. He was great in this particular period of his career as well. Um, so he, he sells that as best he can, but I just didn't like that scene. Russell Crowe would have gotten the nomination probably if it wasn't for the phone-throwing incident. Um, I don't know how many people are aware of this from what was happening at during that time, 2005, but he threw a phone at a hotel concierge, hit him in the face and the guy was bloodied and um, this was all in the news at the time. And he was kind of said to be, you know, nailed on for a nomination and then lo and behold, he gets kind of uh, left out for Terence Howard in the last, you know, sort of the last minute. But he's he's good in the film. Yeah, I think he's fine. Yeah, I think he's good. I have to say, in the in the begging for money scene, he looks a little bit too much for me, like a like a kicked puppy. But otherwise, he's fine. I didn't remember was this was this phone throwing incident then? I always thought this was when he had when he did a beautiful mind. What did he do with a beautiful mind? Didn't he also hit somebody there? And people said that's why he lost the Oscar. And then he, then he must, and he must have also hit somebody there, because <laughs> I think there was something else. Oh, so Crow shoved somebody against a wall and cursed them out because the actor's acceptance speech had been cut short. This is at the Baftas. Guy with a temper. Yeah, definitely. I mean, over an acceptance speech. But I, I, th- I think I still remember when. Sorry, I, ju- I just quickly want to say because you said it's Oscar bait. I, I mean, I remember when the, the the trailer came out, and in Oscar forums, it was like everybody was like, I don't think people were happy about this Oscar bait. It was oh god, it's Rene Zellweger crying in an in an alley, and it's Rene and it's Russell Crowe doing this, and I think people were actually dreading it. So a, a lot of people that I communicated with at the time, so maybe it was just, maybe maybe the Oscar bait was just too obvious. Can sometimes backfire. I think maybe also fatigue with 
Ron Howard with Crow and with Selweger, who kind of been all over the Oscars the previous years. Um, yeah, they were all kind of past their peaks. Yeah, so maybe this was just too Oscar sort of um, recipe on paper. But I want to ask about Giamatti. Like, because he gets quite a lot of screen time. I think he might have the most screen time of any of the nominees. But I'd be interested to know what percentage is just him shouting, you know, hit him in the head. And then, you know, like, <laughs> get him, get him on the ropes. Like, there must be a lot of the screen time is just that. <laughs> but um, I thought he was all right. I mean, I didn't, it, it's, I think the thing is, I think he sells the dialogue um, in ways that, many actors couldn't because I don't think it's a great part but it's the kind of part that would traditionally get nominated in this category it's like all the way back to the Jolson story for instance like the manager trainer mentor role it's always been this popular go-to in supporting actor and that's not to say Jamati isn't good I think he's fine but just as like I think I feel like Academy voters with this category you know there's maybe a lack of adventure um as to to the kind of performances that can get nominated here and maybe it was a bit of a makeup nomination i'm not saying he's not good in the movie but maybe it was a bit of a makeup nomination for not nominating him for sideways which he really should have been so i mean when i started watching the movie i was thinking oh he's kind of warm he is lovable he's a little bit of fun he's a little bit of fresh air so this typical supporting player that is supposed to steal the movie but it began to somehow feel a little bit the same after a while and he didn't really add anything more after this i think they could have made more of the home life there was an interesting scene where the, she goes into the his flat and he's sold all his furniture. And, you know, it was interesting seeing that he's got, he had like um, a wife from another country, it seemed, which, you know, they, there's one scene of that and you think, oh, well, hold on, maybe you could have been a bit more a part of this film and instead we had to endure, you know, every single utility they had being cut off and, and all of that business at the beginning, whereas it could have integrated him more into the story, I think. Um, and in- instead of being so one track with the depression, gloom, war is me thing. But I mean, I think if it's Oscar bait, and this is probably his Oscar scene, where you as the viewer like, oh, look, he, he also has it so hard. Oh, but he is so noble. We just have to love him. I mean, again, he's not bad, so I don't want to, to, to mock his performance or I think he does what he, he needs to do and he's probably better than the role asks him to be. But again, not too special. Okay, all right, so we're going to move on to William Hurt in A History of Violence, William Hurt's fourth and final nomination. Uh, he was nominated for uh, three years in a row in the 1980s, won an Oscar for Kiss of the Spider-Woman. This is from David Cronenberg um, and History of Violence, also nominated for Adapted Screenplay. What did you guys think of this one? Um, I liked it, although I think that it was very much, I felt watching it, this is the second time I watched it, but saw it at the first 
time around as well, I felt the same way. I felt like I was on rails with it from the very beginning. Like, it seemed like it was very... I wasn't going to have many twists in this story. It was just going to tell a story where one thing followed the next very kind of obviously. Um, And I also feel like it is a short film disguised as a feature. Because the... I mean, it's based on a graphic novel, right? But the... For example, the whole bully subplot with the sun, which takes up a grand total of like two and a half scenes, if we're being generous, um, and that completely disappears after about the halfway point of the film, seems added as a kind of half-baked B-plot to what could have been just a short film um, or a much shorter film. So there... I liked the film, but again, it it was kind of weird watching it because I felt like I already knew where it was going from the beginning and nothing really surprised me. And I also felt that, um, that Tom slash Joey really keeps up the facade going way longer than anybody's buying it. <laughs> it's like, he's got this whole, yeah, I don't... I don't know what's going on, this guy, they think I'm this guy. It's like, dude, we all know, okay? This isn't going to be some twist where it turns out they you have an identical twin. We know who you are, and everybody gets it, you know? So <laughs> it just seemed like he was really reaching for a long time before finally just kind of throwing up his shoulders, or with his one shoulder because he'd just been shot in the other one, but just kind of throwing up the one good shoulder and being like, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? I am Joey. <laughs> that would have been great if he had a twin. It would have been like um, mm. a companion piece to Dead Ringers. <laughs> like, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm, I liked it. Um, wouldn't say it's a masterpiece. Um, I, I liked it more at the beginning. I felt the whole plot when Ed Harris shows up with his buddies it becomes a little bit too cliche so what you would expect from a kind of gangster movie um but i like that it didn't went into complete john wick territory where um vigo mortison takes out uh 200 guys all by himself um i think i i liked it i don't think i have too much to say about it i think the performances were fine it was Sure, it, yeah, it was not very long, but it, I think it made a point. Was was good. Yeah, it does have yeah this graphic novel history, and apparently, the original script was a lot more violent, uh, which Viggo Monson didn't like. Um, I kind of liked that it had these bursts of violence in it, and then. It had sort of long periods of tension and then a, a burst of violence, um, etc., etc. So I thought it was kind of paced very well. And I did kind of want a bit more at the end because I thought, you know, I, I was just left thinking, but what now kind of thing. But yeah, I think the violence packs a punch. Um, I did wonder whether this might have merited like a best makeup nomination. Which, I mean, now by 
the standards of now, it's probably not doesn't look great. But for two thousand five, I think the makeup is pretty good on the whole on the gore factor. Um, Serviceable. I mean the the yeah Ed Harris's kind of one eye thing maybe not up to uh, modern standards, but yeah for for two thousand five definitely. But it's got, I mean, it, in a way, it's kind of this precursor to No Country for Old Men, where it's sort of got this questioning, you know, what are the, and I don't think it's as good as No Country for Old Men, but it's it's kind of questioning, you know, what are the repercussions of violence? Because it's interesting, there are no physical repercussions for anything um, Tom or Joey, Tom slash Joey does in this film. <laughs> It's just nobody's bothered, to be honest. But there's there's all sorts of like moral and emotional issues that come from that uh, within the family. And there are some, you know, stretches of believability. Like I think it's incredibly quickly how the gangsters have managed to find him after the attempted robbery happens because... We know it's a 15-hour drive to Philadelphia. So would that be on network local news in Philadelphia that this has happened? Surely this is not going to be a national story, right? So (laughs) I was just thinking if they just got people scouring network TV for, you know, former gangsters in the witness protection program. Like, what's going on? It That felt really sudden. Like, I think it needed... We could have had more, we could have had scenes at the school. We could have had scenes of her. God forbid we ever see her working. She's a lawyer. Never there's a scene of her at the courthouse or anything. So we could have had a bit more there. And then 15, 20 minutes later, they turn up and it's like, oh, okay. They found out. So, yeah, that that felt very rushed to me overall. But I do think, you know, as a reveal that he's actually Jimmy, I should have killed you back in Philly is, is actually a really good line. I did love that line. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but it isn't a surprise, right? Otherwise, what would the point of the film have been? But it is just kind of, it, it does kind of repeat itself a bit. I mean, I get that it's examining the repercussions of violence or something, but it basically is people show up to kill him he kills them instead then that ha- then that happens again and then he goes to the house of people who are trying to kill him and he kills them instead and the end and it seems and it it's made clear though that um Richie is not the head man in this mob so it's not like he's killing the don and now no one's going to bother him. He's basically killed a very high-ranking uh, capo or lieutenant or whatever you want to call him. So I don't understand why the implication at the end of the film is, well, that's it, and now they're going to just let him live his quiet life. If anything, they're more angry with him now than they've ever been. Yeah. So <laughs> w- what is going to happen so next? why is he not saying to the family, let's get out of here and go to Mexico? Like, well, <laughs> he, he wants to make sure that they still love him first, you know. But you know, I have to imagine that's the next day, though. Once, you know, now that they're having breakfast and the ice has thawed, you know, and they've forgiven him for all the lies and betrayal. 
then he's like, oh, by the way, um, we need to get out of here like yesterday. Oh, sorry, sorry. And I just want to say, it's also like the, the son also shoots somebody, but it also never gets addressed again. So it's like, yeah, it's like the movie shows, okay, there's a, yeah, there is a lot of violence, but I mean, we as the audience are definitely on the side of, of, of Mortensen. So it, I mean, it's, it's definitely not the same. It, it is not the same kind of John, like John Wick, where you're basically, where it's more like style over substance and you just want to see the killing in a very cool way. But it feels a little bit okay. We want Mortensen to kill as many bad guys as possible in the end. And I don't feel that there's really any moral implication here. Yeah. I, I mean, that you'd think that that would traumatize that kid for life, right? But it's sort of the way it's framed in the film is very much, you know, now you're a man kind of thing. That's how it felt to me anyway. Um but I did like that the film knows this situation has comedy, I think. Like, I, I don't think it's just Maria Bello saying the comedy in the situation. Um, but I thought the scene in the hospital was hilarious where he finally owns up to, to being Joey. And she's like in the corner saying, I don't fucking believe this is happening. Um because she's a lawyer and she turns out she's married to Hitman. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on, you've got to see the comedy in that. Um, mm-hmm. And when even when he goes home, the son uh, cracks a couple of jokes as well. So I, d- I think the script is definitely trying to lighten it up a little bit by having the family just be completely thrown by this turn of events. Um, and uh, there's also a scene where Tom says to the son, you know, in this family, we don't solve things by hitting people. And then the son, like, back chats and he just slaps him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, there's too much in this film where I think you've got to know that this is actually comedic. There's black comedy running through this film. Mm -hmm. The point, I mean, I laughed the most when he comes home from the hospital and the son asks him, what should I call you? And he just says, dad. And that I left because it's like, well, (laughs) obviously, like that part isn't in question. You know, he is he is the kid's father. And he's, you know, he hasn't been calling him Tom before that. He's been calling him dad. So it's like, just keep calling me dad. You know, that part we haven't that hasn't changed. So I thought that was a very odd line. Um. I wanted to mention the sex scenes. I think we need to talk about this because they found time in a 90 minute film for two pretty kinky, uh, pretty lingering sex scenes that, you know, could easily have been cut out, except that they have this kind of strange before and after purpose um, of demonstrating where their relationship is at the time. And it's like, Am I having sex with Tom? Am I having sex with Joey now? It, it, <laughs> I just think it's really... I, I kind of thought it worked, but it it's an interesting technique of, of sort of um, demonstrating where their relationship is at that time. Yeah, I also thought they definitely served the plot. So the first one to establish their relationship and the second one to show that it's kind of messy now, but there's still attraction between them. And 
to be honest, in a time where we constantly have these Twitter takes where people write, oh, I don't want to see two people kiss in a movie that feels like violating. I'm kind of happy that there, that there are sex scenes in this just because, yeah, why not? <laughs> they're actors, they're having sex scenes. Big deal. Well, I did read that Cronenberg um, was concerned that the stairs were too hard and wanted them to like <laughs> put something on them and they said and they said no so i think it was um quite a few bruises incurred from that encounter mm. uh, <laughs> but it looks i mean it looks terribly uncomfortable but it is slightly um titillating on a level of like just impulse um it kind of worked but i think in terms of maria bello there was Again, category confusion. Um, she didn't get nominated for this. She was campaigned by New Line as supporting, but the Globes nominated her in lead, which kind of muddied the waters a little bit. But do you guys think she's supporting or lead? I think I would probably see her as lead. Yeah, same. It's a very short film, but she's uh, definitely... I would say she'd probably be more lead than supporting. So what about William Hurt in a very short role? So what I liked about this is that it feels like a throwback to like the 30s and 40s when there were often nomin- character actors nominated for these kind of short appearances. So it always, especially when you also have somebody like Jake Gyllenhaal in there for obviously a lead performance that you have these kind of classic supporting roles. That, the, that this category was intended for. And I have to say, when he appears, the movie, I think the movie has been going on for over 30 minutes when he finally appears. And it's not like that you have been waiting for this moment, but you know, the movie kind of reaches its climax and takes a little bit a new direction. And you know, okay, this is now the big moment. So he brings a different energy to it. So I like this. And... Personally, I feel during his during the conversation, I would have liked him to be a bit more threatening. I didn't personally. I didn't feel he was. He seemed that dangerous. It seemed like a very normal conversation, and kind of when he is gone, I had a feeling. Okay, I wish there would have been a little bit more, but I very much appreciated what he did with his uh, small screen time. Mm-hmm. I really, yeah, I really liked him in this, and I kind of liked that he wasn't threatening in and of himself um he he gave off a very interesting energy that isn't kind of typical of a mob boss uh that i thought kind of added a very idiosyncratic element to what you're right it was like the climax of the film it's almost like this is meant to be like the big confrontation but it's mostly just a quiet conversation with between a very quiet man and a kind of awkward uh mob boss who doesn't who has this kind of odd uh characterizations and William Hurt really plays him in a bizarre way uh not befitting the character which is kind of very Cronenbergian in itself I thought it was great um and I thought his expressions throughout the scene where uh Joey is escaping um and he just turns around and just has this look on his face like he can't believe what he's looking at not like he's impressed by his brother not that he's scared just that he honestly is stunned by what's happening um and then of course he takes out a gun and somehow manages to fire like four or five shots and only hit 
the wall, even though Tom is pretty much right in front of him the whole time. That was kind of weird. Um, but yeah, the, the anti-climax of the whole thing is uh, a point in the movie's favor, I think. Um, and just the, their final re- their final confrontation is really, really funny. Yeah, I liked him. I think because he, he did win New York Critics and LA Critics for Best Supporting Actor. Which which got him in the conversation, but he was still kind of a dark horse and not really expected to get into the lineup. Um, maybe because of the screen time and that he's only in the last bit of the movie. But it's very it's like grandstanding, but a level down from that. Maybe like I feel like he knows he's got the power and he's deliberately trying to intimidate and kind of more obnoxious than threatening. But that is off-putting in itself. And his eyes are a little bit crazed. It's a performance I've not seen from William Hurt. It's completely different to the performances he's given that I've seen anyway. Um, So, yeah, I think, yeah, maybe a little overacted in certain ways for me. Didn't fully steal the show. But, um, yeah, I think definitely got across what it needed to it's really creepy performance and he does something interesting with it that that other actors wouldn't have wouldn't have done so yeah it's it's a big tick for me but all of these uh men lost to george clooney in syriana and syriana is based on the memoir see no evil Produced by Steven Soderbergh, directed by Steven Garn, who was also nominated for screenplay. Um, and for Clooney, this is one of three nominations that he received at these Oscars because he was nominated in director and original screenplay for Good Night and Good Luck. Um, and this the screenplay was ruled original just in the week prior to the Oscars, actually, um, to the Oscar nominations where it was previously considered adapted, which is interesting. Um, and that got nominated too. How did you guys feel about Syriana? Because it doesn't look particularly exciting if you read the synopsis, at least not to me. Um, I, I hadn't seen it in, in ages, um, like many of the other movies. Um, to be honest, I thought it was better than I had remembered it. Um I felt a different storylines worked maybe because it were not like, as we said, with Crash, there were so many storylines. Uh, so there, there were a couple and I think they were balanced quite well. And I was able to be engaged with the, with all of them. Yeah, I think they definitely trimmed, like it doesn't have too many storylines going. It's only, I mean, three or four and they interweave quite well you don't get i don't think i was ever confused when it's moving between the characters and between the different uh plot lines i did feel a little like let down a bit by the overall story which basically was the oil industry is bad um and um western presence in the middle east is destabilizing and I feel like we know that. Uh, I don't know that it added anything to it or made us see it on any new level. Um, 
the lengths that the government and the big business interests over there would go to maintain their profits. Um, didn't see anything that we didn't already know. It was tragic, of course, and it was... Um, I, I liked the contrast that, and I liked the storyline of the U.S. and U.S. business interests murdering the progressive democratic leader as opposed to the more totalitarian regressive leader because the regressive one is the one who was going to keep up their oil interests. Um, that was obviously very realistic and very uh, sobering, but again, um, something that I guess was something you could kind of see coming. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't like there was going to be any, uh, even when Barnes, you know, Clooney's character kind of goes rogue to try to stop it. You never, that's not like a heart pounding moment where you think, oh, he's going to stop the drone from killing this guy. Cause like, what is he going to do? Um, so that was more heart pounding to see, is he going to die as well? Not, is he going to succeed in holding off the interests of the entire U.S. government? Yeah, this one took me the longest to watch because I wanted to make sure that I understood it and it was quite dense and I needed to make sure I was understanding what how the plot was unfolding. But yeah, I agree with you guys that the three sort of plot strands work better here than um, Crash and... Although I do think that the terrorist subplot could be a bit more developed. Um, it kind of manages to tie those three different viewpoints of American investment in the Middle East in a way that makes the point succinctly. But the terrorist thing is sort of very by the numbers to me. I don't think it really attempted to dig into reasoning or sort of delve into characters in that sense. It's sort of kept that western remove from that part of it which was a little disappointing um one thing i want to compliment which is a really strange thing but i thought it was a really original and considered way of killing off matt damon's kid like <laughs> which <laughs> you know it's you see kids kid death in films and grief and oh and it's all the same. This, it actually felt so specific, so specifically original, that it made me think that it must have been taken from a real-life incident. Because the way that the swimming pool scene unfolds is, like, really striking and I think visually quite really interesting as well, more than emotionally, which kind of fits how clinical the film feels and the point of the film in a way. Um but I was just kind of taken with that. And I like that we don't get 10 scenes of Amanda Pete shouting to Matt Damon, you know, you've killed our kid and crying and blaming him for everything, which another film could so easily have done. But this one, you know, it, it, it understands what the film's about. And this incident, like, just becomes this unfortunate accident or this negligence on behalf of, the hotel that again speaks to the fact that there's no regulation building regulation in the middle east so that tied into it as well and yeah it was still a sobering moment for the movie and for that character although i think he could have maybe been a little bit more upset but yeah um 
So yeah, I kind of thought even that approach to trauma fit with the tone of the movie and it all felt very almost um, very clinical, very cold in a way, but yeah. Yeah, it's probably not breaking any grounds or telling anything that we don't know already. Um, but it feels feels a little bit like Crash, so that like a movie that feels it has something very important to say, but it not really, but it doesn't really say anything new. It really says things that probably many people just want to hear, or criticizes uh, specific or criticizes specific things, or tells okay this is not right, and yes we know this. And yeah, I think it's one of those films that's definitely of its time where the subject is in the media a lot more and this is sort of very much tapping into that um a bit like you know sort of green zone and, and other you know films at the time that were kind of similar um i think one thing i read was that harrison ford was offered the role that clooney eventually took um and kind of regretted turning it down. What do you think? Do you think Harrison Ford would have been a welcome addition to Syriana? I mean, there are so many actors in it that you know, I think he would have probably fit into it. Depends on, yeah. I probably would have worked. Yeah, I can actually see it. I could see him in the role. Would have been interesting. I mean, even William Hurt is in it got William Hurt, Christopher Plummer, um, Matt Damon, who we said, Chris Cooper, um, which I think might be a problem for George Clooney, at least it is for me, in that I don't really see why George Clooney stands out as a performer in this film, um, among those other actors. I had the same opinion at the beginning of the movie, I think during the movie, I began to understand it more. I feel that Clooney is more like one of these old Hollywood movie stars who's not who has this own who has his own personality and brings this to the, his personality to his roles and adjusts them to it instead of like a Meryl Streep completely transforming himself. And I'm not saying this is lesser acting. So people like I don't know Catherine Hepburn or Betty Davis did this as well, and. I think this can be very successful and I think it works well in his case. And I feel that because he has this movie star personality, there is a certain aspect of his performance and his characterization that does stand out for me. Also because, I mean, also because the role is probably naturally the most show, not showy, but the one the most um, engaging for the viewers. And I do feel at the end he does stand out for me at least I, it didn't stand out for me but I agree with what you're saying about the his personality fitting the roles and I think that works the best in Michael Clayton like where I just think he's perfect as that person um, in that in that film and if it wasn't for Daniel Day-Lewis probably would have um, got the Oscar but yeah I, I mean I think he's good in this because I think he's good in delivering dialogue in this straight talking way uh, and mixing that with the sort of man in crisis um, character. And he's kind of believable as somebody who eventually gets a comeuppance. 
in Syriana, it's, you know, I believe the character. I just think there's other performances in the film that are better. So I think if you didn't, like, have any context of this year or the race, for me, I'd be puzzled as to why they decided that this performance was better than Matt Damon's or Christopher Plummer's, for instance, or enough to win an Oscar. But I still think he's good in it. And it's more of a passion project for him as well, which is interesting. And we know he's, you know, very on the left of um, politically, at least for America. Um, so, yeah, I thought he was, I thought he was quite good, but it, it's, um, it's an Oscar win, not, not um, something I can get behind. And I mean, I have, I don't know how, I, I have, I don't remember if this was controversial that he did this movie in two thousand five. I just remember how following nine eleven and the war in Iraq, there was this crazy patriotic patriotism in the US where with the Dixie Chicks and things like this where everything went really overboard with USA and every, everybody else is evil and you are not allowed to say anything critical so and I have no idea if it was controversial at the time to make this movie of uh, of the situation had already calmed down again if the movie was even seen as controversial at all I don't remember it being controversial, like, say, on the level of Zero Dark Thirty or something like that. Um, but, I mean, it must have been disliked in some quarters, but it didn't stop him from from winning. I have to say what I liked about him. I thought he played the the, the tiredness of his character pretty well. And I also liked the, the confrontation scene that he had with Christopher Plummer. So that he didn't, I felt he, I liked it that he, I liked it that he didn't overplay many of his scenes. One big thing about the performance was that he gained like thirty five pounds for this, and you kind of wonder, well, why? <laughs> like, can, can a slim guy not play me in this role? I, I don't know if he was trying to make himself look less movie starish, more sort of frumpy, to to take away from that in this because it doesn't work in that sense you know you're still watching movie star George Clooney in this role but yeah apparently just gorged on pizza for a couple of months to um to pile on the weight but you, very strange why that was needed yeah I, hmm, good point yeah he's definitely still a movie star <laughs> he's definitely still George Clooney Okay. Um, all right. So we've got some listener questions this week. We're going to kick off with Zeta, as we often like to. Um, and Zeta asks, sticking with um, sort of war in the Middle East. Um, uh, Zeta asks, um, I know this point has been discussed to death by academics, but why do you think that the Hollywood films that attempted to capture the Iraq war era didn't capture the zeitgeist in the same way that World War II era and Vietnam era films did. It gets lighter after this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to be honest, I haven't been... F so I'm not aware of any discussions that have been going on of this and I'm not a very academic person. So, I mean, I suppose World War II pictures, probably the difference is that World War II was much... Effect, probably much, just affected 
everything much more, affected the entire country much more. Um, I have a feeling wars, as, as you progress in time, wars become much more these very clinical operations where, of course, still a lot of people die, but you sometimes have the feeling they die on the other side because the West has these very effective weapons and things like this. Not saying that not... Uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I have a feeling that World War II, there was also a sense, okay, this has to be fought. While, again, as we progress with time, there is a... I think the anti-war movement becomes more prominent and you have to question just... Everybody reacts different to what is happening. And yeah, it's a really difficult question. I, I just better hand over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if I have much more uh, to add, but I do agree that World War II kind of had a more unifying effect. Um, and the Hollywood industry kind of really threw themselves behind it really wholeheartedly uh and that captured the zeitgeist because as you say it was kind of billed as a good versus evil kind of fight and and um there was much less uh opposition to it there was certainly opposition but not as much as we would get um to the iraq war and then of course vietnam was the complete opposite you had um hollywood approaching it from a very kind of uh disillusioned new hollywood uh, paranoid thriller point of view and which did generally capture the zeitgeist it was a very unpopular war um, and the movies reflected that which isn't to say there weren't some anti-war films in world war ii and there weren't some pro-vietnam films in the 70s but those were definitely the exceptions and i really don't think that the post 9 11 uh iraq war had that clear um majority to it at least my perception of it being in america at the time um there were certainly people who were against it and a whole lot of people who were for it but it wasn't like world war ii where everybody agreed yes we have to fight uh and it wasn't like vietnam where it was like our boys are dying for nothing um it was a mix so there wasn't really as much of as it was a much trickier zeitgeist to capture uh in a film because it's hard to get that nuance and even you know Syriana doesn't really play much in the nuance game um and i think most of them don't so i think maybe that's possibly why like it wasn't as clear cut what the zeitgeist was yeah the public were really split on invading iraq in the first place right so that's um i think it's wars becoming very dehumanizing all around but there's films that have done well like the hurt locker and american sniper have done well with um awards bodies i think they've worked because they kind of speak to the mental toll of the soldiers and they go for a bit more of a personal angle rather than full tilt patriotism which is probably not going to work certainly not at the minute anyway um so yeah uh, David, next question from David. Um, haven't seen Crash, but I've heard things. On a scale of one to ten, how much were you dreading it? Like most, like one, not dreading it at all. Ten, absolute horrible dread. Yeah, ten. Yeah, it was. Uh, I definitely was not 
happy to revisit this uh, in any on any level. I would say five because I thought, well, it's probably not that bad. And the next time I'm, I have to rewatch it for some, I might have to rewatch it for something. Then I will probably dread it more on a ten level. Yeah, mine's a three because I wasn't because I hadn't seen it since it came out, so I didn't remember it being you know bad in any way. So yeah, so I was I was very prepared to revisit it, but. Um, that was obviously a mistake. <laughs> David asks, um, rank the acting lineups we've done with Fritz. I'm assuming, yeah, go, I'm assuming he means like rank them compl- like as the whole lineup, number one, two, three, four. Yeah, okay. Yeah, go ahead, Fritz. Okay, I would say the ladies of 78 are first, then the men of 63, then... Uh, then become then the ladies of fifty two, and then the men of two thousand five. Completely the same. I agree. Yeah, I have the men of sixty three first, and just because they're so damn hot, and the, uh, the ladies <laughs> of seventy eight second. It's totally fair. No, I I do think I do think that sixty three lineup is actually really really great. It well. is. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. Next question from David. If you could give each of these nominees one more nod in any category, what would it be and who would they replace from the official lineup? Now, I assume this means in their career, in any year. Yeah. So, for instance, Paul Giamatti in Sideways instead of Johnny Depp is what I've got. Yeah, that's that's actually the same one for me. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Um, What about Clooney? Didn't he win a globe for Oh, oh Brother, Where I mean, Art Thou? Did he win a globe for that? I think so, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen this one in ages. He would have been a great addition to supporting actor for Burn After Reading. Um, and I would, I could probably bump Michael Shannon uh, out of that to make room for him in 2008. Um, Burn After Reading, one of the... Uh, pretty horrible snub that that didn't get any oscars attention but yeah um i i could see him winning uh, not winning but being nominated uh supporting in 2008 i thought he was great in that i thought you gave michael shannon the win (laughs) did i no i I mean i i I, no i i I don't think i remember ranking him higher than you but i don't think i gave him the win i'd have to double check uh the ranking but i don't i don't think no i don't think i did we need to record these rankings. <laughs> yeah, clearly. We need a spreadsheet. I mean, I, I think Clooney got nominations for work. I think the nominations he received, it's fine. I mean, I really don't... I don't know. Could he get supporting actor for Gravity? I don't know. I, th- I think I'm fine with the nominations he has. I mean, one I would say is maybe out of sight. He, I think he's really good in that. Um and the 98 lineup it's not terrible I not I could easily have Hanks or Benini take it out yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. it's always fine to take out Benini mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about Jake uh, well Nightcrawler yeah I think that's the, probably the most obvious one and I can take out Steve is it, is it the year with Steve yeah. Carell but I think so yeah 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 he, 
Yeah, he, he can replace him. Yeah. Uh, William Hurt. But very surprised he didn't get the, the nomination for Accidental Tourist, which I liked and thought it was really good in that. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. I hate I hate the movie, but I thought he was pretty good in it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. It might be my crush. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I would kick out Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> do we have one for Matt Dillon? I mean, I hated the movie, but maybe the house that jack built uh because he is i think pretty creepy in that and he manages to do a lot of interesting things in it i hate the movie um but i if he was nominated for that i guess i wouldn't mind because he does act the hell out of that role so maybe that one i liked the movie i'm just going crazy here and say that i think he's pretty good in in and out I don't know. The, the scene. With... Oh, I don't. I don't even remember that film. <laughs> he plays. He plays the actor who get who wins the Oscar and outs Kevin. Uh, Kevin Klein. I think he's fine. And he rom- He and he romances uh, John Cusack. So good for him. Okay. Um. David again, keeping in theme with my best actor question: How hot is this lineup? I would say less hot than sixty-three. Um. And you were saying Clooney kind of went out of his way to try to make himself uh, less hot by kind of putting on more paunch, I guess. Um, But he's still, I mean, he's still George Clooney um, and he does have a very nice beard. Um, I don't think Matt Dillon is that attractive. Um, So he would be my Rex Harrison of this lineup. Um... (laughs) <laughs> but the others are, I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal, obviously a very attractive uh, man. William Hurt maybe passed his hotness prime, but he's still decent. Um, and Paul Giamatti, yeah, he's he's all right. Not a conventional beauty, <laughs> but still, you know. I can't believe you're ranking Matt Dillon below Paul Giamatti in this line. <laughs> what can, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. It's a personal taste. <laughs> I mean, based on personal taste, I would also say it's it's a hot lineup. I agree, it's not as hot as the best actors, uh, sixty three. Because I think the difference is also the actors in sixty three they were allowed to be hot. So of course, Paul Newman was hot. Albert Finney was hot. They were all all, all allowed to be hot in their movies. And I don't know. I mean, Matt Dillon is a racist cop, so that's not hot. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a yep. Yeah, I mean, in general, Matt Dillon, yeah, is attractive. William Hurt, I agree, maybe past his prime, but if we say 80s, William Hurt, it's fine. Paul Giamatti is not necessarily my type, but I get the appeal. George Clooney, yeah, also attractive. And Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal deserves the, the hot label. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't. We don't have to rank them. We didn't get that question, but yeah. Uh... <laughs> uh... Okay, so now we have to rank the best performances from the acting categories we've done with Fritz. And if we could only give an Oscar to one of them, who would it be? Now, 
We don't want to spoil today's We're not, we're, we're not going from 1 to 20 here, are we? No, no, because otherwise we'd be spoiling the today's ranking. Shall we just do top three? I, I'd be really surprised if there's a performance from today that's in anyone's top three of these, right? No. No. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm going to say my top three are Ingrid Bergman at number one. Gene Hagen at two and Richard Harris at three. But if I could give an Oscar to one of them, it would probably be Gene Hagen because she really should have won that year. Yeah, I think my top three would be Ingrid Bergman and Gene Hagen as well. But my top three would be rounded out by Jill Clayburgh um, and An Unmarried Woman. And I think if I was going to give any of those three the Oscar, would still be I would give it to Gene Hagen as well. Yeah, because she, I think she was the... Uh, clear far and above winner uh, in that lineup and it's crazy she didn't win I have the same top three as Chris and it's really painful to say who would be the winner but I think I would give it to Jill Clayburgh the bottom three would ruin the ranking for this week Uh, (laughs) (laughs) potentially Um, (laughs) okay well there's still Uh, Gloria Graham that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And Rex Harrison. Um, Owen asks, given how ensemble-driven films like Crash, A History of Violence and Syriana, um, do you think the right supporting actors were chosen for the films um, that were nominated? So for those three films, was were the right supporting actors chosen? Um, if we go by actors, I would actually say yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know who else in Crash I would nominate. Um, I think of the, if you're going to nominate, if you have to nominate somebody, which I think is what um, we're thinking about here, I guess, yeah, why not Matt Dillon? Um, I don't, it's interesting to put History of Violence in with those other three because I didn't really consider history of violence an ensemble piece um so yeah I, d- I definitely think William Hurt uh got a nomination because he was the right uh person to in, in that one um Syriana a bit murkier there um well, if we're only going to nominate one performance I'm not sure it would be uh I'm not sure if George Clooney is the one that uh, all other things being equal, would kind of rise to the top. Yeah, I think I'd rather nominate Damon or Plummer from Syriana, but the other two I agree with. Um, I thought Michael Pena gave a good performance as well, which we didn't mention, but yeah. But I definitely would nominate Dylan above him. Why do you think this was Jake Gyllenhaal's only nomination so far? No idea. Yeah, I really don't know, understand why he wasn't nominated for Nightcrawler, and he he's done a lot of great work in other films too. So it does it is kind of strange. I mean, I know there's the theory that Academy members like attractive actresses when they do dramatic work, but not really attractive actors. So that there's always a certain um prejudice against them i mean when you have for when paul newman had to wait so long and so you don't have it that often often that young actors win 
compared to actresses. I don't know. I think it was some somebody once called this. I think slapped the stud. Um, no idea if this is really a thing, but um, could play a role. And maybe just yeah, night. You, I think people always point to Nightcrawler. Yeah, that's. I mean, you also had uh, Ralph Fiennes the same year who could have been nominated. So just just didn't make it. I don't know what 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 else are people saying. Is there anything else people say he should have been nominated for? Well, I think Zodiac is one where people don't think Zodiac got the nominations it should have deserved, but at the same time, I wouldn't nominate him for it. Um, and then he did try and do, you know, some quote-unquote Oscar stuff like Rendition, um, which didn't work out. Enemy, um, Nocturnal Animals. Yeah, didn't he do something like where he played a survivor of a terrorist attack or something like this? Oh, um, was it Stronger? I don't know, but I don't know what's the title, but I think he did something Oscar Beatty like this. Yeah, Stronger, where he he played the marathon runner who was blown up. Ah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I I would assume that at some point he might get another nomination if he does something that's more Academy-friendly. Maybe if something like like maybe if something like Nightcrawler had come out a couple of years later, when the Academy's dismembership slowly began to change more drastically, might have gotten a nomination. And I mean, to be honest, I mean he got. And, and I mean, we have to be honest. He only got this one nomination because the category frauded himself into supporting. So I doubt he would have gotten a nomination if he had campaigned as lead. Um, Andrew, final question from Andrew. Would George Clooney have won the Oscar if not for Good Night and Good Luck's presence that season? Which will bring us on to the question, why did George Clooney win this Oscar and was it close? So Good Night and Good Luck, first of all. I mean, it's hard to say. I have a feeling that a lot of people in Hollywood were waiting for him to have an Oscar role and to get a kind of role that they would give him an Oscar for. And he did this physical transformation, if necessary or not. Um, It is the kind of project you can give him an Oscar to without feeling bad about it. I suppose Good Night and Good Luck did not hurt and definitely gave him another push, but I could actually imagine that he would have won without it as well, simply because everybody was just dying for him to have an Oscar and nobody knew that he would follow this up with a couple of lead actor nominations well I think I mean I think if enough people were dying for him to have an Oscar he would have won the SAG which he didn't win Um, which Paul Giamatti won so in that sense I think there's no way he wins Mm, that's also true he hasn't got good night and good luck Um, because I think Giamatti is in a more Oscar friendly film as well it's a kind of role that's familiar in terms of winning oscars so yeah i I think this was really close personally this race um because we know there's more voters in sag than there is in the globes so that's a bigger indication of who's going to win wasn't the element more popular at sag or was it just paul giamatti or did it get more nominations crow crow was nominated 
I mean, Syriana got a Syriana got a screenplay nomination at the Oscars. That's true, didn't it? And Cinderella Man didn't. Only got um, technicals. Although it did get editing. It feels like the light. Yeah, probably even. Yeah, probably true. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I I just say he would have won anyway. But I can also see a world where he doesn't win. Chris, what do you think? Um, I kind of yeah, I agree with what you guys are saying. I think that um, he was definitely boosted by the profile of Good Night and Good Luck. But um, I also agree that they were looking to give him an award, and I think that he kind of makes reference to that in his acceptance speech, right? The first thing he said was, well, I guess I'm not winning director. <laughs> so he he, he kind of did kind of poke fun at the kind of self-reference, the fact that he was kind of, this was his year, you know? He was going to win one of these uh, Oscars that he was nominated for. It was just a question of which one, almost. But yeah, um, I, I do think that he had a had a lot behind him going in. Um, so yeah, it probably wasn't that close. Okay, um, so let's talk about snubs for this year. Who do we think was right on the outside of this lineup? I mean, I'm not saying he should have been nominated, but when you look at the history of violence, you could imagine people maybe saying Ed Harris. I thought he was. I thought he was pretty annoying in the movie, and I didn't really care for him. So I'm happy he wasn't nominated. But can see why you feel he should be nominated. Yeah, I, I mean Don Cheadle got um, quite a few nominations for Crash, uh, which I think is interesting because he wouldn't be anywhere near the top of my list. I think would rather nominate Pena, even Howard, above him. Um, But yeah. But nominated at BAFTA and SAG, I think. I think Bob Hoskins um, in in Mrs. Henderson Presents. I think some people talked about him. Yeah, that kind of faded away. Yeah, also I have to say I don't remember. I think I, li- I think I liked him, but I don't remember if he was Oscar worthy. I think um, Clifton Collins Jr. in Capote is maybe somebody that could have. Yeah, that's right. Gotten in based on the film's popularity and the fact he's playing. He's got a couple of really juicy scenes as this um, murderer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I'm trying to think who else? Oh, Will Ferrell, the producers was. In- got a globe nomination but that's typical golden globes and nothing else kind of nomination donald sutherland never been nominated i think would have been a, a lovely addition for pride and prejudice i think he's really really touching in that but that nobody really um managed to pick up that performance so Uh, wider observations on 2005. We haven't discussed 2005. Obviously, we talked about the Best Picture announcement, which was shocking. Um, and I think you could like even hear the murmurs of surprise in the audience. Like It was that um, much of a shock. Mm-hmm. Well, was I think what's notable about the years is the first time since, I think, 1956, that all six, like the all four acting categories, picture and director, were in, awarded to six different movies. Um, 
So that's a pretty rare occurrence. It happened again in 2012, but I think it hasn't happened uh, since then. But yeah, so definitely spreading the wealth. Um, and again, um, most of the acting winners coming from non-Best Picture nominees. Uh, so very much kind of a broad year um, and difficult to kind of get a sense of the theme uh, with this kind of thing going on. I mean, we were talking about how Brokeback Mountain came in with a lot of energy, but even that, um, you know, nothing won more than three Oscars, so it was very much a, a spread out kind of year. Yeah, which is rare for before the preferential ballot came in anyway. Um, the best actress lineup, we can actually do best actress because none of these um, films were involved this week, but I mean, it is extremely weak, I think. And I do kind of really like that Reese Witherspoon has an Oscar and I like Walk the Line as a film. But that lineup in general is, um, you know, they really um, they really messed that up and should have nominated Joan Allen. Yeah. 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 2005 is it's kind of I mean, it's in it's between 2004 and 2006, which I which for me are both really fantastic best actress lineups i think 2006 is generally agreed to be very fantastic i'm i'm not sure how people feel about 2004 i'm, I'm very passionate about it yeah i think they're great they're all good um but 2005 is yeah yeah 2005 just kind of sits there i mean i'm fine with with, with a spoon winning it's kind of perplexing that she won so much for this I mean, she 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 not only I think she won only televised awards and she won so many critics awards for this as well. When you, when it's not really her movie and Joaquin Joaquin Phoenix won. I think he only won the Golden Globe, but of course they are in different categories, so it's not really doesn't make sense to compare it. But it just feels like kind of it feels a little bit strange. But I, but I feel she makes the most sense in that lineup. What about the fact that Walk the Line didn't get the Best Picture nomination? Is that surprising? Because Ray had gotten the nomination the year before, um, which might be part of why it didn't didn't um, didn't manage it. But I th- certainly think Walk the Line is a little bit of a step up, and not quite as flagrant with the Oscar bit. I think it was surprising, also because it won a Golden Globe. Maybe it felt a bit. Maybe it felt a bit. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's because of Ray. I mean, I think both of those movies, uh, the first half, first half an hour is essentially the same in both movies, isn't it? I think in both cases, they they lose uh, a little brother at the beginning. And I don't, yeah. (laughs) It's been a while since I saw them, but yeah, maybe it was because of Ray. It was a little bit like with Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman the year after. Yeah, and of course, um, Dreamgirls didn't get the nomination the year after this either. So. Yeah, that's right. All right, um, so shall we rank these? Okay, so Fritz, you go first, five to one. Um, so number, my number five is Paul Giamatti. Um, again, did everything he needed to do, warm and lovely, but just not just a little bit lacking uh then my number four is matt dylan 
believable as the racist asshole, but again, not the most exciting role. My number three is William Hurt, who brought some energy into the movie. I just wish it had been a little bit more. I'm personally very surprised that I actually have George Clooney at number two because I never, I'm never very passionate about his win, but I'm honestly also not very passionate about this entire lineup. So he gets number two a little bit by default. Um, number one is a little bit tricky because for me, Jake Gyllenhaal is far and away the best performance here. Like it's not even close, but he's also obviously the lead. But in the end, I'm, I didn't nominate him here, so I can only work with what I got. And if he's nominated in supporting, then I will judge him in this category. And based on his performance, he's clearly the number one. Wait. Yeah, interesting. Um, I actually have, um, I have Matt Dillon at number five. Um, did not think uh, he did much in a, in a movie that also did not do much. Um, I actually have George Clooney at number four um, because, again, he was good, but he didn't really do much. He, di he didn't um, rise above anyone else in the film for me. Um, whereas Paul Giamatti, I think, was decent and he had some really touching scenes and he does do what a supporting character should do in the film, even if it was kind of a by-the-book character. Um, I have William Hurt at number two simply because I loved the bizarre energy that he brought to the part. And I think that um, he was kind of like you were saying earlier, Fritz, that kind of uh, true supporting, almost scene-stealing 10-minute role that I just love to see get nominated. But yeah, um, no contest who's number one. It's obviously Jake Gyllenhaal, even if he is a co-lead. Um, and probably should have been in that category. Obviously, yeah, far and away my number one. Okay, um, so I have Paul Giamatti at number five. I think he was okay, but um, it's kind of just a, a stock role, and I don't think he does that much with it um, overall. For I've got George Clooney, I can buy him as the character, but again, I thought there were better performances in the film itself. Um, and that he's been better in other films, honestly. Um, three, I've got William Hurt. Again, it's only eight minutes, but he makes the most of it. And menacing and grandstanding in a way that could be overcooked and maybe is a tad, but not that much uh, that it distracts from the film. Two, I've got Matt Dillon, who I liked a lot more than you guys. I thought I just could really see the um the toxic masculinity brought to the role just fit with the movie um and one i have jake gyllenhaal definitely comfortably the best performance so we have different rankings quite different rankings but then agree on the number one so yeah nice nice to see some variation uh after several episodes of just lockstep rankings <laughs> well we've just been agreeing every week it's so boring <laughs> 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 we have a website it's categoricallyoscars.com we're on twitter slash x at categoricallyo um, leave us a review on uh, whichever podcast platform you listen to us on uh, next episode we're going to be talking about best production design 2014 the nominees were The Grand Budapest Hotel The Imitation Game Interstellar 
Into the Woods and Mr. Turner. Thanks, Fritz, so much for coming on again to complete the quartet. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the chance. <laughs> uh, maybe next time we talk about Best Picture or the hottest Best Picture lineup. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the hottest Best Director lineup. How about that? Uh, <laughs> That's an idea. Um, we'll think of something. Um, all right. Thanks, uh, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. See you then.